him to speak to us in a powerful way. Gracious Father, we are thankful to you as the author, as the architect of our great salvation, that the Bible speaks of you as being the one who designed it. Out of your great love and grace and mercy, you sent your Son. We're also thankful to you, God the Son, for sacrificing yourself on our behalf, um, tasting the wrath of God in our place for us so that we might be free to live as sons and daughters of God forever and ever. And we're thankful to you, God the Holy Spirit, for coming and giving us new life and giving us hope and working in our lives and communicating God's personal love to us on a day-by-day basis. Gracious Father, I want to pray that you would do a work not only in our church but in the church of this country and this town. Lord, we're in desperate need of a, of a purging and, and revival and refreshing of your spirit, the likes of which I don't know that I have ever seen. Father, there is so much sin that has been grafted into the hearts and the minds and the lives of the church that we feel in many ways compromised, compromised in mission and compromised in our affection and loyalty and devotion to you. And so we would ask by the power of your spirit in the days and weeks and months ahead that you would do a move, uh, a move upon us in a mighty and powerful way. Lord God, I, bre- I, I pray that you would use your word to be the catalyst to do this and that we would be um, continually humble before you and seeking you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that you, by a sovereign act of grace, would work, that you would renew, refresh, and revive. So, Lord, will you pr- please help me now to deliver this truth in a way that your spirit takes and, and uh, drives home to my family here. In, in Christ's name, I pray this. Amen. Most of you know... Wow. That's not the kind of Holy Spirit I'm hoping for. <laughs> How are we doing? Are we still on? Can you guys still hear me? Most of you know I have fairly young children. Um, my oldest son is 12, and my daughter's 9, and my youngest is 3.4. So naturally, I watch a lot of animated movies. And uh, I don't know, a few weeks ago, we went ahead and bought the DVD for Open Season 2. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, but it's kind of, uh, we don't get a chance to go out to the theater very often. I'm in 10 bucks a pot with five kids. I'd have to take a mortgage out of my house just to pay for the popcorn soda and the tickets. We watched this open season. We were sitting on the couch eating popcorn, and there's a scene in it that just captured my attention, not only because it was funny, but because it captures the essence of that inner conflict that every human, fallen human being feels between what we know to be right and what we do, that what we know to be true versus what we actually do, this inner conflict. I know I should do this, but I want to do that. So I thought I'd show you this clip really quick. It's only like 20 seconds. Go ahead, Mike. That is so reminiscent of Romans chapter 7. That what I know I should do, I do not do. In this little uh, clip, some of you may not have seen it, the context is this little 
Dachshund Terrier has, uh, has run away from its owner. It doesn't want to go back to the owner. It's running into the wild. But the owner's a shrewd owner. It knows the dog's favorite treats, these little milk-bone dog biscuits. And so the owner, it's a woman, a rather large woman, coats this, uh, the trails with these, these little milk bones. And, of course, the little dachshund comes upon one, and that's when he says, No, it's the food of oppression. He feels it. And you can sense his inner conflict between the nine and the yah, nine, yah. And finally, the poor little sap gives in to his inner desire, that enslaving desire, and he eats it. And in the story, he is then captured. I don't know if any of us, I think, in fact, every human being alive on the planet can relate and sympathize to that inner struggle between what you know to be right versus what you do. That is, even us as Christians, we recognize that we don't always do what we know we should do, and there is this inner conflict um, that each of us has those areas where we are subject to and we are tempted by sin. And just to be clear, we're not wired, all wired or shaped to sin in the same way because each of us comes from a different background, different personality, an amalgamation of different influences and so forth shaping us to be more susceptible in some ways than other ways. That is, each of us has a propensity to sin in some ways that other people don't. For example, some might find themselves constantly struggling with anger for whatever reason, upbringing, personality, a unique combination of those things. And you know when your wife or kids cross you, you should not react with verbal abuse. Nevertheless, you more often than not, despite the nine and the yah going on in your heart, you give in to the dark side and you say things you shouldn't have said. Or there's the stereotypical person, man or woman, who knows that they shouldn't do this, but nevertheless they reach into the medicine cabinet, into the drawer, that secret place that their wife and kids don't know about, and you grab that bottle of pills that you know you shouldn't take, or that bottle of Jack Daniels that you know you shouldn't drink. You know what's right, but you find yourself doing it. That how many of us then don't struggle in other ways, like you may not struggle with alcohol or, or substance abuse, you might not struggle with anger, but when you go by the sale rack at Macy's and you see something you have to have, but you know you shouldn't buy it, but you find yourself knowing you shouldn't do it, but you go to the rack, take it off, put it on the counter, reach back or reach into your purse, pull out the wallet, and you pull out the plastic. No, you shouldn't, but you do it because your issue is that, that, that impulse of consumption, that materialistic impulse. Others, it's laziness, everything from lust to the craving of power. Each of us have those areas where, kind of the design of our personality and our upbringing and influence, we are shaped to sin in certain ways. The question is, do you know which one yours is? Now, my guess is you probably do. That is that inner conflict between what we know we should do and what we oftentimes do. Well, I believe, and this is good news, that Romans 8, 5 through 13 offers to us a way, it offers to us a way, the possibility, the promise of potential and progressive victory over those things. That is, over that dark side of us, it offers to us a way to experience progressive victory so we are not enslaved perpetually to these sins of the heart or sins of the mouth or sins of spending too much or sins of eating too much or taking the wrong things. And that way is the way of the Spirit the Holy Spirit. The amazing thing about what God has done, and it gives us a sense of grace and mercy, is that when Jesus came, we called him Emmanuel, which is God with us. But when the Spirit came, it wasn't God with us. It was God in us. You get the sense that God desires to be with his people, not only with us, but in us. 
And it's the presence of the Holy Spirit in the heart that enables us to actually live out the heart of God. Christ came to atone for sin, and then the Spirit was given to empower God's people. The question is, do we understand what it means to live in the Holy Spirit and to experience his victory in our lives? Now, in these verses, Paul lays out in verses 5 through 11 his understanding of the Spirit. You might call it his theology of the Spirit. That's 5 through 11. Then in verses 12 and 13, we find our responsibility to the Spirit, to Two sides of this message, two sides of this text. His understanding of the Spirit followed by our responsibility to the Spirit. And I'm going to read this for you, this passage, 5 through 11. And you'll notice that he bounces back and forth between two radically different realities, two contrary realities between spirit and sinful nature. Two very different things. This is what he writes. And you'll see, again, these polarities. He writes... Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. Now he switches to the other pole. Is that just me or someone like hammering on the roof? You don't hear a thing. That's good. You need to turn up your hearing aid, buddy. (laughs) I love it. Okay, we're having fun. Um, I'm going to back up here, verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mind set on what that nature desires. That's one side. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. That's the other side. Now he's going to flip again. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind of controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. Going back again, the sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Then he switches again. You, however, are controlled not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit, if the Spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, it does not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive because of righteousness. And if the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who lives in you. So you sense this back and forth between two poles, two realities, two antithetical, diametrically opposed realities. That is, the sinful nature on the one side of what Paul calls the flesh in some translations. When he talks about the flesh, he's not talking about your skin. He's talking about those worldly impulses that enslave human beings. One theologian calls it the egocentric self or the sin-dominated self. It's that worldly impulse. That's on the one side That is diametrically opposed to what he says on the other side, which is the Spirit of God. That those two things, sinful nature and the Spirit of God, are violently opposed to one another. Violently, ferociously. They cannot exist in the same place in a tolerable way. They're bitter enemies. That's that's these two realities. And Paul talks about these two realities in three phases, if you will. That is... There's three aspects to this, these contrary sin nature versus spirit. That is, he contrasts their natures, contrasts their results, and ultimately their relationship to God. Those are kind of subpoint A, B, and C. Starting with the natures, that's verse 5, where he says, Those who live according to the sinful nature have their mindset on what that nature desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their mind set on what that or the Spirit desires. That is, Paul envisions two radically different natures. 
Most of us, if we think about it for a couple of moments, can understand what a nature is. Uh, by crude analogy, we know the basic nature of a dog. <laughs> Dogs do certain things in and of themselves, intrinsic to what it means to be a dog. You don't have to get down and teach a dog how to bark. It does that all on its own. It's its nature to bark when a stranger comes. You don't have to teach a dog, at least a male dog, to go up to a fire hydrant and lift its leg. That's not something you have to teach a dog. They, by nature, male ones at least, lift their leg. You don't have to teach a dog to like a nice dog beef rib bone full of meat on it. It's in their nature to want those, uh, that kind of food, to want beef. It's in man's nature, too, to also want beef, at least in my nature, to want beef. That is the nature of a dog, to bark, to lift its leg, or to want to eat meat. It's part of its nature. It does what it does because it's designed to do that. It's part of its nature. By contrast, a cat has a very different nature, doesn't it? It does not bark. I have never seen a cat bark, and I don't think you could ever teach a cat to bark because it's not in his nature to bark. It Meows, it hisses, or it purrs. And a cat, unlike a dog, doesn't lift its leg. Never seen a cat do that, walk up to a fighter hydrant and lift its leg. No, it digs a nice little hole, much neater and nicer than a dog. At any rate, those are two very different natures. And basically Paul is saying there are two kinds of people in the world, and there are only two kinds of people. There are those who are defined by a nature that is sin-bent, that is self-oriented, self-indulgent, self-gratifying, self-centered, self-confident, self-righteous. It's basically kind of a black hole existence in which we arrange everything in life ultimately for us rather than others or for God. That is a sin nature. And people choose and desire and think based out of that nature. You'll notice in this text... He talks about the sinful nature sets its mind on what that nature desires. Nature producing certain desires, which then produce certain thought processes. I mean, that's how it kind of works. The the relationship between thinking and desiring is that you want something, and what do you find yourself doing? Thinking about it. Some of you are hungry right now. And out of that hunger comes thoughts of bacon, eggs, tri-tip teriyaki, chicken. See, I'm making you hungry now. And also thoughts also incite desire. But he's basically saying there is a sinful nature with its own distinctive desires and its own mental intent. That's one nature. But there is something amazing that God has done for those who have truly come to Christ. And that is God has awakened a new nature within us with its own distinctive desires and its mental intents. It's what Jesus talked about in John chapter 4 when he said, you must be born again by the Spirit to see the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there has to be awakening of the soul with new desires and out of those desires, new thoughts and new intents of the heart. It is this new birth the Bible talks about, something that the Holy Spirit does in us. That is, there's this radical reorientation of the soul so that we begin On the basis of the cross and through the power of the Spirit, we begin to want what God wants. Now, it may start small at the beginning. I mean, that's how it works, at least in a baby. If you use Jesus' analogy in John 4, that you must be born again. A baby is born, and it comes out of the womb, and now it can smell, and it can taste new things. It starts to see sights and hear sounds it didn't know before or hadn't heard before. And it begins to experience a whole new different world. But those desires of a baby at least mature and they strengthen over life. And I think that's 
what happens in a Christian's life is there is an awakening of a desire. A new nature has been implanted in us, those of us who have truly embraced Christ, that produces a new desire, a desire to actually want to submit to the Lord, not simply out of obligation, but because we desire to. We start thinking about the things that he wants us to think about. That is, the Holy Spirit moves in and through desires and thoughts. That, by the way, brothers and sisters, is not an abstract theological category alone. It is something that God's people have experienced and do experience when they come to Christ. It is an awakening of the soul. Sometimes it's just a flicker at the beginning, but it is something that we experience. I know I can look back to a period of my life where I didn't hunger for this book. And I didn't understand this book, though I had heard it for weeks and years and decades. But there was something happened which I can't attest to anything else than the Spirit opening my eyes to something and awakening in me a new desire, which caused me to hunger for it in a new way. That there was a thirst for the Lord that was born. It was small at first, and over life it's continued to grow. Certainly not where I want to be, but I've seen it grow. And many of you know and can share and sympathize with what I'm talking about, that there was a time in which you recognized, I do have a hunger for the Lord and a thirst for Christ. That there is this budding, budding sense of wanting to help people and to love people. That, that's the Spirit of God in you. That awakening these new desires and these new thoughts so that you actually want to do what He tells you to do. I remember hearing a, a message once out of Romans chapter 12. I happened to be 19 at 12, 20 at the time, and it was, uh, it was on um, making your life a living sacrifice. And the, and the man, the preacher, said, that means the totality of your life is offered to Christ, not just when you come in here, but when you go back to your barracks or you go back to your apartment, you go to your job, you're his. You're the sacrifice. You're worshiping him. And I remember realizing that I laughed at a lot of jokes back in the barracks that I shouldn't as a Christian. And you know what I wanted to do with that truth? I wanted to obey it, and I went back and I started living differently because I wanted to. That is one of the fundamental changes Paul's talking about, what the Spirit does in life, is it awakens in us a new nature, a new desire, new thoughts. And that is a subjective experience that the Spirit produces in us. Now, let me say as an aside, I know some Christians would say and hold to the view that there's nothing in here but bad. They would quote that verse saying that the heart of man is deceitfully wicked. Now, in one sense, that's true. But for the Christian, while we still have sinful impulses within, the Spirit of God has given us a new heart with desires that are in line with him and thoughts that do come from him, which means we do pay attention to what's in here. So here you have him contrasting two very different natures, the sinful nature and the spirit nature. There's two types of people. You're either in the flesh or in the spirit. He contrasts also two very different results of living out those two different realities. That's found in verse 7 and also, excuse me, verse 6 and also verses 10 and 11. He writes this. He says the mind of sinful man, that's the sinful nature part, is death. That's the result not only defines sinful man as as being dead to God, but also the final result, and that is complete and utter separation from God. That's eternal separation. So the mind of sinful man ends in one place, and that is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit results in life and peace. 
And it's not life and peace only in the future, but life and peace in the present and in the future. Because he breaks that out in verses 10 and 11. If you look down with me, beginning in verse 10, he says, But if Christ is in you, that is the Spirit of Christ is in you, Your body is dead because of sin. When he says body, he's talking about the physical body. As soon as you're born, you start to die. So your body is dying. It's part of the fall. Your body is going to die because it was subject to sin, part of the old world. Your body is dead because of sin, yet your spirit is alive. So those who have come to faith in Christ and have had the awakening, your spirit is now immortal. If I die in a car accident tomorrow, I will still be alive. What's in here? That's life in the here and the now is what he says. That's the result of the, of the Spirit in us. And also life yet to come. Verse 11 says, And if the Spirit of Him who raised, that is Spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, again an intensely Trinitarian verse, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the Spirit who lives in you. In other words, the same spirit that rose Jesus on Easter is going to raise our bodies and bring us back together, spirit and body, to into all the new heavens and the new earth. So it's life here, peace here, now, and also life yet to come. And I'd say to us once again that the life that the spirit offers to us is not merely a theological abstract concept, but life defined in the book of Galatians is a life with the joy of knowing the Lord. A life that knows the delight of tasting the wonder of who Jesus is. A life that knows what it's like to hope beyond death. A life that knows what it's like to be free from sin and to be forgiven. Those are experienced realities of life. In other words, I believe what the Holy Spirit holds out for us in life in peace is a kind of life that doesn't live in the bleak, hollow, gloomy spirit of this world, but a new kind of life that people can see in us. A difference. A joy that's there. A hope that's there. A love that's there. An experienced reality. That's what the Spirit does. They have two very different natures. Sinful flesh, spirit. Two very different outcomes or results. You have death. You also have life and peace and resurrection. And then the final thing that he contrasts in these two realities is two very different relationships to God. Two very different relationships to God. This is set out in verses 7 and 8 where he writes, The sinful mind is hostile to God does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. So in other words, listen to this. And this is what he's saying. Not what I'm saying. It's what he's saying. Is that apart from the cross and apart from the spirit coming and awakening, when a person leaves this life, all they are to God is a hostile enemy, incapable of submitting and incapable of pleasing him. You enter into the next world as an enemy of God, which is not what anyone wants to be. Apart from Christ, apart from the Spirit awakening a new nature, we are by nature, in this category, hostile. Hostile towards him, 
incapable of submitting to him in a way that pleases him, which is, do I know him will ever make it to the new heaven, new earth, or experience the blessings of salvation by trying to be good in and of your own strength? In fact, Paul goes on to say that they are incapable. It's not simply a matter of choice, but we are fundamentally, apart from Christ and the Spirit, incapable of submitting to God in a way that actually pleases him. This is a truth that later theologians would call the doctrine of total depravity. That doesn't mean that people are as evil as they can be. What it does mean is by ourselves, we are completely incapable of saving ourselves or pleasing the Lord. We are nothing but in the end enemies. That's what he's saying. That's what, it's, that what it means to live in this category here without Christ, without having the Spirit awakened your soul, new desires and new, new thoughts. But... To flip it again, that's what it means in the end. Your relationship with God, really there isn't one. You're an enemy. But in verse 9, he flips it around because he's confident the people in Rome who are followers of Jesus do have the Spirit. He says, you, however, are controlled, not by the sinful nature, but by the Spirit. If the Spirit of God lives in you, if it's in you, it controls you at some level. And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. But I want you to notice, and he's going to go on and talk about it the verses after, but that last phrase, belong to Christ. If you don't have the Spirit, you don't belong to God. But if you do have the Spirit, you belong to Him. Because you're not an enemy or hostile, you actually become a child, a son, and a daughter. That's what you become to Him. And again, this is not merely a theological abstract concept, but that we actually experience being children of God, that the Spirit of God communicates the Father's love to us in a way that we are able then to respond, and he says this later, Abba, Father. The Spirit connects us to him in a way that makes us his family, and we sense that we are his family and children. As he testifies with our spirit, that we're, we're his children. That's what the Spirit does. So, again, to summarize and put this together, Paul is giving us his understanding of the Spirit of God alive in the church and alive in you and I. And that is, he awakens within a new nature, us, a new nature with, with new desires and new thoughts, which produce different results of life and peace, both here and also in the future. And then finally, the Spirit of God makes us part of God's family. And all of these, I believe, are experiential qualities, not abstract. That's what the Spirit of God does in the life of his people. That's Paul's understanding of the Spirit. Two very different natures, two different outcomes, two different relationships to God. But then he goes on, to press upon us our own personal responsibility to live that out. Paul never, ever, anywhere that I know of, would divorce God's grace from human responsibility. There is alive in the church a spirit oftentimes that says, hey, listen, all you got to do is let go and let God do all the work. It is a very passive view of the faith. And Paul, I don't think, would allow that, and he would probably violently reject it. Because it goes on to tell us our personal responsibility now to what the Spirit uh, does in life. That's verses 12 and 13, and it's fairly radical. He says, therefore, brothers, like in light of everything he said, the theology of it, he says, we have an obligation. But it is not to the sinful nature to live according to it. For if you live according to the sinful nature, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will 
live. At this point, he puts the ball in our court and says, we need to now live this out. And he provides both a radical warning, and then the second part, it's a radical call to warfare. The first part, he says uh, that we have an obligation not to the sinful nature, and this is a stern warning for if you live according to the sinful nature, if you continue to live in the sin-dominated self, if you continue to live like the poor sap of a dog who gives in consistently and repeatedly to the old nature, and Paul says, you will die. He's not talking about mere physical death. That's a foregone conclusion of verse 11. He says his body's dying anyway, but we're alive in the spirit. He's talking about the fact that you will die if you continue to walk this way. It's a stern, stern warning. And it's one of the, things, one of the ways that God has designed in Scripture to help his people along and to see that we need to take the Christian life seriously is to give us warnings like this. Hebrews has warnings like this as well that we need to be very careful how we live. In other words, according to this, there really isn't room for the kind of coasting, floating, pathetic Christianity that just says, eh, whatever. He's saying, if you live according to that old way, you will die, is what he says. You hear that? And then he flips it, and here's the, the all-out call to warfare, and he says, if, however... You, by the Spirit, it's done by the power of the Spirit, if by the Spirit you put to death, that word is translated elsewhere as murder, it's a graphic violent term, if by the power of God's Spirit within, his new desires and new mental thoughts that he gives you, if you put to death or murder the misdeeds of the body, you will live. In other words, that inner conflict for us as Christians becomes an all-out war, recognizing greater is he that is in us, the Spirit namely, and we will aim our cannons and guns at those sinful tendencies of ours, and we will, we will do our best to kill or murder them. I think some of the terminology here is important. I don't know, and I don't believe in this life, that we can ever root out the desire itself, the impulse. We're going to continue to have anger at times. We're going to continue to have lust at times. But he talks about putting to death the misdeeds of the body. That is his body. That means doing what you can to make sure you provide no provision for those things. Don't allow things to come into your life that will tempt you to fall. That is, you stop it at the gate, or you, again, wage war against the action itself. Just want to, that's, 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 a, that's a radical work of the Spirit in life. You've got to kill your sin, is what he's saying. By the Spirit's power, you need to do that. How many Christians do you know that have that kind of a, a rabid, violent hatred of their sin, so much so that they are endeavoring by faith in the Holy Spirit, courage from the Holy Spirit to put it out, to put it to death. Many of us have more of kind of a pruning approach to sin. That's a little out of control. I think I'll prune it here, here, here. We don't uproot it, we prune it. You know what happens when you prune something? It usually grows back twice as big the next year. Can you imagine finding out that you have a brain tumor. And a surgeon, you know, cuts open your head, cuts open your scalp, pulls it out, and he trims a little off the tumor. He puts your skull back on and sews you back up, and you wake from your sleep, and he goes, hey, did a little trim job on your cancerous tumor. You'd say, cancer can kill me. Why didn't you cut it all out? The fact of the matter, there's 
probably more people who are afraid of swine flu right now than the sin that entangles their life. Swine flu can kill you here, but enslavement to sin will kill you here and there. And that's why he says, by the power of spirit, you need to kill it. You might say, Dan, I don't know how to do that by the spirit. How do you do it? To which I probably say, well, I will say this. You start on your face and on your knees and you fervently cry out and seek the face of the Lord and you say, Lord God of heaven, grant me the grace and the strength to kill this. And you do it as often as you need to on your knees. I have not met a person yet who has been a fervent prayer who have not made progressive growth and experienced progressive victory over sin, people who pray. I'd also say that you need to find, because I... See, most of the commands of the New Testament as lived out collectively. That we tend to individualize and say, oh, I have the Spirit in me by myself, isolated from other people, and so I, by the Spirit, will cut off the sin. And I don't believe God ever intended His commands to be carried out that way. Is that we stand shoulder to shoulder, side to side together to help one another with these things. It's the Spirit indwelling the community, not just you as an individual. So finding that person, that brother or sister that you trust, who is also spirit-guided and spirit-filled, and saying, listen, I've been dealing with this. My wife doesn't know about it. My kids don't know about it. And has ruled my life. And I need to tell you everything that's happened because I need your help and the Spirit's help through you to conquer this thing because the Spirit wants me to kill it. He is violently opposed to it. And if you're unwilling to share that with somebody else, then it means you still value your own reputation over your own holiness or the embarrassment over the progress of life and freedom from that sin. You're not ready yet, in other words. You're not really ready to kill it. When you have to kill something, you do whatever it takes at all costs to kill it, including embarrassing yourself by telling a close friend, this is what I'm struggling with and I need your help. Until you're willing to do that, I don't think you're willing to kill it. And then last, I'd say you have to, You have to act decisively. Kill and murder is a decisive word. It's very similar to what Jesus says in Matthew when he says, if your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. Granted, he's speaking figuratively, but he's saying, you as my followers, you've got to have an aggressive, aggressive, decisive attitude towards sin and don't tolerate it in your life. Until you get to that point when you're on your face about it, you're willing to Share it to another person who's spirit-filled, or you're willing to act decisively, burning whatever you have to, throwing in the garbage whatever you have to. You're not quite ready to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh. Now, if you think about it, what he says here means that that kind of mystical, romantic vision of what the Spirit is in our lives, this kind of this euphoric, mystical joy, In one sense, I suppose it's true. In this sense, having the Spirit in your life can be very painful. Yes, there's life and peace. But when by the power of your Spirit, things in your heart that you once loved are being uprooted, that hurts. That's a violent act of the Spirit in in life. I think someone gave this book to me. Um, actually, they recommended it, and I've read portions of it, and it has skewered my soul and gets it, the nail on the head. 
when it comes to what the Holy Spirit does in life. And it is nothing less than revolutionary and radical. It's A.W. Tozer, God's Pursuit of Man. And I just want to read you a little section of it and listen to it. He says, I'm going to close with this. He says, are you sure you want to be filled with a spirit? Who, though he is like Jesus in his gentleness and love, will nevertheless demand to be Lord of your life. Are you willing to let your personality be taken over by another, even if the other is the Spirit of God himself? If the Spirit of God takes charge of your life, he will expect unquestioning obedience in everything. He will not tolerate in you the self-sins, even though they are permitted and excused by most Christians. By the self-sins, I mean self-love, self-pity, self-seeking, self-confidence, self-righteousness, self-aggrandizement, self-defense. You will find the spirit to be in sharp opposition to the easy ways of the world and of the mixed multitude within the precincts of religion. He will be jealous over you for good. He will take the direction of your life away from you. He will reserve the right to test you, to discipline you, to chasten you for your soul's sake. He may strip you in this part. He may strip you of those borderline pleasures which other Christians enjoy, but which for you are a source of refined evil. Through it all, he will enfold you in a love so vast, so mighty, so all-embracing, so wondrous that your very losses will seem like gains and your small pains like pleasures. Yet the flesh will whimper under his yoke and cry out against it as a burden too great to bear. As soon as you start getting radical about life and by the Spirit's power putting to death those things, your old flesh will cry out like a banshee saying, I can't handle it. But on the other side, on the other side of putting to death the misdeeds of the flesh is the joy of the Lord. And that makes it worth it. I'm saying, brothers and sisters, we'll know when God is moving in our hearts in this congregation and people start burning their pornographic videos when they start cutting up their credit cards, when they start doing what needs to be done to put to death the misdeeds of the flesh, then we'll know that the Spirit is alive and well in our community because we are not tolerating those sins of heart that we once did. What are those things that you 